Missed the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast. On Point Tonight, Toronto Police launch a new initiative to stop gang violence, and it involves police and community members teaming up to go directly to gangbangers. It sounds good, but will it work? FBI warning Russia and Iran are interfering with the American election, sowing chaos and confusion through disinformation. Think it can't happen here? It already is. We'll talk about the Quebec website linked to Russia. We'll update the situation in Caledonia, which has been a flashpoint for violence with native groups and developers. The premier says he won't tolerate it, but sorry, this is going to take a lot more than words. And the new Borat film spares no one, and it may just be the thing we need to survive this year from hell. Let's talk about that. economy if this thing just continues to spread and gets up over a thousand cases. I, I just want to make sure we keep our hands around this and, and do everything we can with balancing uh, the economy as well. It's, it's, it's not easy, I'll, I'll tell you. Well, we won't have an economy if we keep shutting things down, but the numbers are going the wrong way and it can't be blamed on restaurants and gyms, but they'll pay for it anyway. Alex Pearson with you on this very much needed Friday, October 23rd. Boy, oh boy, end of the weekend. Uh, happy to see it. And uh, some much needed sunshine that makes, uh, I think, a lot of difference in a lot of lives after a very, very dark and dreary week. Albeit, uh, now we're getting some really wild weather across southern Ontario that um, will mean I'm going to get interrupted many, many times by the annoying message that you actually should, in fact, listen to. But we'll keep you updated on some of these storms because uh, uh, southwestern uh, Ontario could get hit pretty hard. And of course, it will happen throughout the evening. But, you know, it's been a very it's been a tough week, you know, especially if you're one of these businesses being crushed by these COVID shutdowns, because what the case numbers seem to be telling us is that restaurants and gyms are not the problem because the four days that have just gone by where we've seen numbers going up, I mean, the businesses have been shut down for two weeks and the premier himself admitting, you know, the community spread is actually further, much further than the GTA. And as of Monday, we could see Halton and Durham rolled back. And that's because uh, those in charge, well, they're not in charge of this virus. I mean, we barely have any rapid testing. It's already months late. We don't do proper tracing. So it's really anyone's guess how these experts are actually deciding next steps. And if they can't do all that, like how how can they actually tell us what the spread is? And so what we're left with are these very handy, heavy handed shutdowns with, you know, private businesses paying the price. And I am not in any way suggesting that the premier is not in a tough spot. He is. This is very challenging, but it's not enough to tell everyone, hey, you know, we're in this together or that help is on the way because it is just not true. You know, winners and losers are being picked based on what I see as incomplete data and medical experts that have been more wrong than right. And now because they couldn't get their act together, you know, and they had the time to do so over the summer, more lives have to be destroyed now. We have to have a happy balance of the health and the economic health of, of people. And, you, you know, I always say to our health team, how do you measure 
depression when someone loses their their business or loses everything they have how, how do you measure that it, it's very very tough how do you measure mental mental health that plays a role in it and i've made it very clear to the health table uh, that they have to take that into consideration i i truly believe they do I would certainly hope they factor in because, you know, they, they don't have to worry about their next paycheck. And it's anyone's guess what the plan is moving forward. Like, how are we not just getting out of this? I mean, are we just going to keep shutting down economies is the answer? I mean, is anyone actually looking at a plan for how we live with this thing? Because I get it. Everyone's excited over these vaccines. Well, until we get one, it doesn't exist. It may never exist. And the whole response, if you ask me, is just kind of like a big old game of whack-a-mole. And then keep in mind, and I think it's important, when the Premier announced rollbacks for the GTA two weeks ago, it's two weeks ago today, I mean, he himself promised that financial aid was on the way for affected businesses. And we were told that same day because Ottawa actually announced it would be delivering this new plan for business that would let them, you know, apply directly for things like rent relief or for loans. And like, where the hell is it? Where is it? Well, of course, it's stuck on a desk in Ottawa because it still has to be voted on at the federal level. And that will not happen until next week. I mean... Imagine being a business that played by the rules, got shut down through no fault of their own, and now you're still waiting for you know help months and months later. Remember, they didn't really get a whole lot of help the first time because the programs that were designed were deeply flawed. A lot of businesses couldn't qualify, and a lot of those businesses are gone now. So, you know, get it done. I mean, it's not enough to sit back and watch the Trudeau government so busy playing political games with election threats. I mean, all this time wasted on that and you can't get the actual support ready that you promised again a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry, it's not okay to shut down these businesses and then not have those supports in place. It's not just unfair. I think it's really cruel. And it certainly adds a lot of anxiety to those who are already incredibly anxious. And so the the epidemiologists are saying, look, the numbers have to come down. If they don't come down over the next few days, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, yeah, duh. We're already in trouble. Because we've got a chaotic response that has been way too slow. And it's not being driven by data. And pandemic, of course, was a big part of the debate last night, which I did, in fact, watch after the show. Certainly wasn't Donald Trump's strong point, and I think he could have uh, probably come back with a few answers, but he's not the greatest debater. At least he just doesn't stylistically, um, you know, he says stuff, but he, he, he had a few openings last night that I think he should have and could have easily taken advantage of. But what I did find, you know, ironic is that, you know, the attacks Biden makes about Trump's response could easily be leveled at the Trudeau government because Trudeau knew for weeks, you know, that COVID was a threat before Trump knew. And he didn't just downplay it, play play it. He and uh, Patty Haidu absolutely ignored it. They totally ignored it. They failed to make sure that we were actually prepared. They didn't bother to shut down travel from hot zones or they didn't bother, bother to order the rapid testing until now, which is too late. I mean, imagine if they had the rapid testing in place, that extra barrier of protection. 
you know, maybe we wouldn't be seeing all these businesses having to close down. But no, they didn't bother to order them. So, you know, there's a lot to criticize. And Biden believes in these shutdowns, whereas Trump is more in lines of learning to live with it, not killing the entire economy. So there is a very, very stark choice when uh, when voting in this election. But I thought to myself, you know, as I was watching the debate, that I, I, I literally could close my eyes and I may as well have been listening to Justin Trudeau because the Democrats and Trudeau liberals have the exact same talking points, exact same ideology. It's, just, it's almost as if this group of the very same people are crafting this narrative all about all things progressive, be it, you know, climate change, renewables, phasing out fossil fuels. And wouldn't surprise me. They likely do. The same Obama consultants, of course, who helped craft uh, Tr uh, Trudeau's 2015 campaign. Remember, it was hope and hard work. Ooh, that's really creative. I know, not hope and change, hope and hard work. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like they're the same people not only crafting Trudeau's green recovery, but Biden's new green deal. It's kind of like a green franchise. Because honestly, if, if if you didn't pick up anything else last night, it's, where did I hear this before? I feel like I've heard it before. But here's what I think the moment that Biden stepped in and actually could be an opening for Trump. I have a transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I will transition. It is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because... The oil industry pollutes significantly. Oh, I see. Here's the deal. But That's you can't a big do statement. That. Well, if you let me finish the statement, because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time, over time. And I'd stop giving to the oil industry, I'd stop giving them federal subsidies. He won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas, excuse me, to the to uh, solar and wind. Yeah. Why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and have that's one maybe final the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because we basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that Texas? Will you okay. remember that Pennsylvania? I uh, I'm sure it was not lost on Alberta. But man, Biden should have stopped talking when he had the chance because that was a, a mistake. And, and, and he's been caught multiple times lying over his stance on fracking. I mean, you, it takes one second to Google Biden cancel uh, fracking and you'll get all sorts of videos uh, of him saying this year, just a couple of months ago, that he will ban and get rid of fracking. So that is nonsense. He will. But to come right out and say he'll kill oil, that is new and could hurt him in those very um, important swing states those energy swing states. So look, I don't know if Trump will pounce on that, but he's got 11 days on the ground and he should be spending time reminding those people in that all important electoral vote, he will kill oil. He will phase out. I know they like to say phase out. That is another term for kill, done, finished, destroy. And that's millions of jobs. I mean, just ask Alberta. There's no way that comment was lost on them. They've lived this. They know it. And uh, and it looks like uh, Biden wants to do the same. All right. Great to have you here as we take you into your weekend. And uh, the man who shot two young sisters as they played in a Scarborough playground where 12 other kids were playing in broad daylight told a court this week that he'd been triggered by an insult on Instagram. 
And that's apparently what sparked him to retaliate. But apparently social media platforms are actually fertile ground for gangs to trade insults and threats back and forth. And then that spawns a lot of violence that we're seeing ravaging the GTHA, I guess. Is that all it takes, an insult? And the question then becomes, how do we stop this? Well, Toronto cops have a new plan, which uh, involves neighboring teams linking community members with dedicated officers. And the goal is reaching gang members and their families directly to offer, I guess, an olive branch out of gang life. But will it work? I mean, it sounds good. I think maybe it's a start, but will it actually get rid of this cancer? Aaron Greaves is with Hope. This is a group called uh, Hope That Helps Offenders on Probation Excel. It is great to have you with us, Aaron. Thank you for having me. All right. Let, let us start with the first issue, and that is social media and its role in gang violence. I mean, is it really as simple as someone trading an insult that can spark the kind of violence we've seen? Um. Yes. I mean, some situations are complex, but to answer your question directly, yes. It's, um, you know, just with anything in life, when people insult you, you feel away. So when we're dealing with people who are in gangs or gang culture, insulting on the Internet where everybody can see where it's visible, especially when they're talking about people who have passed away, um, you know, these people who have died, they're, they're our fathers, you know, brothers and cousins. So people will feel offended and that could spark the next set uh, wave of uh, violence. I mean, the name Houdini comes to mind. He was, of course, gunned down broad daylight, you know, in a very busy area of Toronto, a child almost killed in that exchange. Uh, You know, he was high profile on social media. And I guess, is it a matter of um, social media provides not just a platform, but builds credibility for these guys? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. So we have the generation that I come from. Um, I was charged with a firearm um, and convicted. We have the older generation who might not take these things so literal, but then we have the younger generation who grew up with social mm-hmm. media as part of their everyday life in middle school. That's how they communicate. So they can definitely see it as, you know, um, invasion of their space. They're, they're on the internet, you know, so they can definitely see it as a little threat to go do something. All right. And a lot of people will say, well, what do we do? I mean, I'm a firm believer, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. So the last thing you want to do is being censoring everything. I mean, and I think it would be impossible to do. But how do you combat that then? Well, I think we have to separate entertainment from threats, right? So um, unfortunately, a lot of this resolves around um, Toronto's hip hop scene or, you know, urban media. And that's where we tend to see, um, you know, some people from neighborhoods who have passed away. And Mm -hmm. this is where we see the insults. So we have to, and not only that, artists like Houdini or whoever have to separate entertainment from threatening and, you know, acts of violence. How did you get out? Was it going uh, to jail, being convicted? What what was it for you that was the turning point? Well, for me... um, I, I grew up in Etobicoke. Um, my mother passed away when I was young, so I had to grow mm-hmm. up quick. So I seen, you know, I always, I'm just like anybody else. I want a nice house. I want a nice car. I want to have a nice family. But I didn't know the options, you know, of how to obtain that legally. Or if I did know the options, they weren't presented to me properly. So I think um, it was always in me. But the turning point was just growing older and maturing and losing so much um, people to the streets and just my situation. Uh, when I was uh, charged for a firearm, I was in York University. So I kind of 
always had, you know, ambition. But when I realized, when I grew up and I just realized what life was really, you know, um, I had to make that change. And the change is not easy. Even we have so many youth who want to make change now, Mm -hmm. but they can't because it's too late. The barriers um, of a criminal record you know, for an indictable offense, it's 10 years for a pardon. So it takes a long time for someone to even get that chance to prove themselves. Yeah, it takes some will. I mean, anytime I've covered a gang shooting or a gang violence, I mean, there are times when I've spoken to younger people in the community, young 11, 12-year-olds, and, and you know, the things they tell you is that there, there's two choices. I mean, you either um, are able to stay out and, and get on a path of, of success, but you have to have a lot of support, family support, uh, people who will invest in you. But there are others who say, you know, we're recruited. We, we have, you know, we could be walking home from school and all of a sudden we are recruited into this life. And it's a very, very difficult line that they have to follow to, to either stay in or out. But, you know, I read this article in the Toronto Star about this new police initiative where they're going to team up community members to try to, you know, go in with cops and I guess, you know, directly try to get people out of gangs or maybe keep people out of gangs. Is this, I mean, it sounds good on the surface and I'm not going to knock it because I do think there's going to be multiple approaches that need to be taken. But how realistic is it that you're going to stop uh, an already you know, gangbanger. How do you get them out of that life? Well, the thing is, um, let's go back to recruitment. I think some, maybe some people are recruited, but I also think some people self-idolize those around them. So simply walking home from school, you see the hardworking mom who's, yeah. uh, you know, in her Honda Civic and you see the drug dealer who he might not be promoting drugs, but you see him in his car. And these, you know, these youths see, the, the two choices and one is so fast and easy. So they definitely lean towards that. So now when it comes to Project Engage, how would it help? I mean, it is a multi-layered solution that we need to really solve this problem. But um, my personal thing is it's a great step. It's a great step in the right direction, but would it work overnight? I don't think so. Just simply because the youth are intimidated by police or either in the culture of not liking police. That's your perspective. Right. So, yeah. It's amazing that the police wants to get community members involved, which is always amazing because that's what we beg for. But at the same time, um, a lot of youth, they're not going to be comfortable with the police, you know, no matter who's with them. The the only great thing that does is um, police cannot intimidate and use their force. Um, Youth in the community might feel safer having their community members along the police. But, you know, if I'm really, really trying to get out of the gang and I'm in a gang, going to the police might not be the the most safest option. So that's why I can yeah. see people deterring from this. Because it would kill your street cred right away or it would make you a target um, for retaliation by, by someone else. And and it, do, it does take a lot of commitment. It's not something you can do for one or two years. You're either in it and, and you're committed to doing this. And it can only be, I think, one step of many that need to happen. But yeah. at least it's a step. But then you look at guys like Drake. I mean, Drake is a huge influence. And and, and he has been connected to many, um, you know, guys who have been killed on the streets of Toronto. I mean, does he not bear a responsibility, um, you know, to, to do something? I, I get it. He wants cred too. But do these guys not ha- have a responsibility here? Yes, he definitely has a responsibility as well as, well as any other entertainer or as well as anybody who's made it to that level because their fans are the people in the streets. They are the people who are going to work, who are affected by these violences in these communities, right? So yeah. they definitely have, um, you know, a responsibility. But what I think is people are scared 
to participate because in Toronto, there's so many agencies, you know, they say they do this and they do that. And that's what they're doing. They're talking. But now we need to see action. So this is a great step in that direction. But what I personally think is we need to empower these agencies. We have so many agencies Mm -hmm. alongside myself at Hope. And we're all fighting for the same grant, you know. And um, there's only so much we can do. We need to put more money on the table. So now people who have the lived experience, they can either get a job or not a job, a career, or Mm -hmm. they can start their own agency where they're helping. You know, I had a discussion earlier about this, uh, about building a new uh, justice center at Moss Park area. And I suggested Mm -hmm. we need people who have lived experience, you know, because doctors make doctors, right? Like they don't learn from somebody else. So if we really want to get these youth and whoever is um, walking the line of this gang lifestyle, what we need is to hire those, you know, who, who, who are former gang members and, you know, maybe have them not with the police. That might yeah, walk. Well, they've got to walk the walk. Yeah. And the other yeah. thing is, I mean, the community itself has to do more. Um, you know, it's not enough when when your, uh, you know, your kid comes in with gold chains and and expensive things and doesn't have a job, and then mom turns a blind eye or dad turns a blind yeah, eye no, to it. They have to take and and community have to speak up when they see the crime. Yeah. No. The the onus is on us, and um, I I am not like you know someone who doesn't know what the real problems are. I do, but our major problem is black-on-black violence or black-on-black gun crime. So we do need to take a responsibility and onus what's going on in our own communities. You know, the police is a reactive force. They're not preventative, right? So they they react when the crime happens. We need to prevent these crimes by happening, you know, and it does start in the household as well. You know, there's a lot of people who are um, using their, their proceeds from whatever crime they're committing to, yeah, like you said, buying gold chains and stuff like this, and mom is struggling to pay rent. So it all starts in the house. But, we know, as a parent, we do know that kids um, at a certain age, they don't want to listen to their parents and they want to listen to those around them. So if those around them who already lived that life, you know, can get paid a real job, a real career, that type of money and say, hey, look, this is not for you. Look what you can do with your life. That's more effective in my eyes than coming from the police. Well, you know, you seem to have um, a, a vision and certainly you have uh, walked it and so you can talk it. But uh, I appreciate the conversation. We will have another one. Oh, thank you so much. And one oh, thank thing, you. I, yeah. I just want to end with um, Sir Robert Peel is um, father of policing in Canada. You know, this is some information I, I've gotten in school. And he has nine policies. And the last one is the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action. So what that basically means is when we know the police are doing their job is seeing less police on the road because they're doing their job so well. So this new initiative, even though I love it, it's a great step in the right direction. We need non-police agencies to have the power and the money spending that they can hire those in the community to do the job. Well said. Aaron, we'll chat again. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have a nice day. And the group is called Hope, Helping Offenders on Probation Excel, if you want to look it up. But uh, it is one step in a very big, big picture, and uh, it's going to take a lot more steps, but it is a step. Well, earlier this week, uh, we learned uh, that Iran and Russia have been meddling with the U.S. election, trying to target voters in an attempt to hurt Donald Trump. But it isn't just about Trump. Uh, This should be seen 
as an attack on democracy and certainly national security. But it's not just a threat in the U.S. It could just as easily be happening here and may already be happening. Uh, a recent CBC story looking into a Montreal-based website, which has been run by a retired University of Ottawa professor, is uh, now under scrutiny over concerns that it is a major conduit of Russian-linked disinformation. It's called Global Research. It runs under a, a Canadian domain, and it is basically a platform that spreads a steady flow of conspiracy theories, be it uh, on 9-11 and COVID, which were apparently both planned to control the population. But this site's got a massive following of 275,000 followers, and it gets as many as 350,000 readers per article. So you can see how quickly this stuff spreads. And according to U.S. intelligence, it's a site that... Uh, has the biggest reach among the Kremlin's aligned disinformation sites and is designed to sow chaos and distrust. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute. He's also um, an expert in these kinds of, of areas of, of relations. Uh, good to have you, Mr. Kolga. Thanks for having me on, Alex. You're cited in this particular investigative piece, uh, Marcus, and, and in it, the FBI cites that this particular platform is one of many proxy sites that Russia uses. And the basis of it is to sow confusion. It does so very, very effectively. And you call it, you know, they do information laundering, but maybe we should say they are into disinformation laundering. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. The, uh, uh, the Russians do indeed use a, an entire constellation of uh, various different platforms that spread uh, various forms of disinformation. Uh, a lot of it is uh, from the far left, some of it's from the far right. Um, Global Research, this Montreal-based platform, happens to be one of the most important ones within this constellation. Um, most of the, the narratives that they produce there are of the, the far left kind, um, uh, articles that are intended to promote uh, the North Korean regime as a peaceful one, uh, the Maduro regime in Venezuela as being uh, unfairly attacked by the U.S., Canadian, and other Western governments. Um, and they're important because they lend legitimacy to uh, some pretty far-out stories. Uh, one of the most uh, important ones over the past several months was in March, where they produced uh, an article that claimed that the, uh, the COVID virus um, originated in the U.S. as a uh, product of U.S. Uh, the bio, uh, it was a U.S. bio uh, warfare weapon, and this uh, this news was spread by uh, officials of the Chinese government. Um, mm. And so you're right; the the entire purpose of this disinformation and the stories that they produce there is to cause confusion, is to polarize us, is to divide us, and the ultimate goal is to undermine and subvert our democracy and our society. Right. And the site operator certainly denies that this is a case. Um, and the bottom line is not known if there is an actual coordination with Moscow. But the problem is, and I don't look at this as a left or a right issue. And I think we have to get away from looking at one side or the other because it's happening on Absolutely. both sides. And it undermines our democracy and what we cherish in North America. Um, you know, if we continue letting this continue, it will eventually destroy us. You know, you're absolutely right. And I thank you so much for making that point. I can't stress it enough that that disinformation and these conspiracy theory platforms there. It's not a left or right issue. It's not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative or NDP issue. This they are targeting our democracy as a whole. Everyone 
loses when uh, when this sort of stuff is spread. And I just want to get back to a quick point that you you mentioned about um, a, a collaboration with with Russia. Um, you're right. I mean, there's there's no evidence of anybody being funded or or of direct uh, 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 collaboration. But what the State Department Global Engagement Center report, um, where this the information about global research comes out, what they do state there is that um, there were at least eight Russian military intelligence agents. This is the GRU. They're the, they're the nasty guys who are behind some of the worst hacks, this recent anti or, uh, vaccination hack that happened in a lot of these yeah. poisonings, including the Skripal poisoning. There were eight uh, authors from the GRU who were posting stories onto this site under various pseudonyms. Um, so, you know, there is quite a significant le- a link, actually, to uh, uh, Russian intelligence operations, which uh, should be quite worrying for all of us. Right. And it's not just about the American election. We could go into an election at any time. And so if they're going to sow you know, the chaos into the American election, and, and obviously Iran has a a vested interest in making sure Donald Trump does not get reelected because, um, you know, he is their arch enemy. He destroyed uh, the, the the nuclear deal that should have been, in, in fact, destroyed. But he, they don't want him in because he's a direct threat to them. Uh, and, and of course, his Middle East um, accomplishments between Israel and a number of countries it has been done. It's a great accomplishment, but it's also done because Iran is such a big threat uh, to countries in the Middle East. And so they, they don't want him in. Um, but they will make just as much uh, noise here in Canada. My, my concern is that people are either so tuned out or so partisan that they're not willing to look at the bigger picture here as the damage it does to all of us. So there, there is some good news in in all of this. Um, first of all, is the is that the FBI reacted as quickly as it did. I mean, it didn't take much more than you know twenty four forty eight hours for the FBI to re- to react and bring out this attack. Um, we should remember that in twenty sixteen, it took months for the Obama administration to to react to the Russian meddling, and that's why we're in we've seen a lot of the problems that we've seen over the past four years quite frankly the other uh, positive thing about this is that uh, both democrats and republicans condemned uh this attack by these uh, iranian disinformation agents so um it shows that uh, both sides understand that this is not just an attack on one side or the other but an attack on democracy and, and that that we're all losers in this uh, when foreign disinformation or foreign agents try to attack us um, Canada is definitely uh, at risk. Uh, we've we've been under attack. I think the uh, uh, recent parliamentary committee on uh, national security yeah. intelligence they warned that we're uh, we're under attack, and they also warned that we're not paying attention to this. Um, well, no, of course not. The FBI has to keep telling us about. It. I mean, how many times does the FBI have to tell us about the terror threat in Kingston? Um, they keep calling us up and saying, yep. "Hey, by the way." I mean, they're essentially doing what CSIS should be doing, or the RCMP, which has uh, rendered itself absolutely useless in this country. But this is the concern: is if we didn't have the FBI, we wouldn't be getting alerted to these things. So I'm concerned as to how far back Canada is, or has Canada become this area where Iran? And Russia and China know how vulnerable we are, and so we're like the launching pad for all of this, uh, these kinds of attacks. Well, I think that the the RCMP and CIS just don't have the re- as they don't have the sufficient resources to to track this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, CSIS is doing it. CSIS has repeatedly, as a CSE, they've warned us that this is this is happening. This is going to be a problem. The fact that this all party parliamentary committee said we are not doing enough. 
Um, and it's unfortunate that this this report was buried uh, by COVID in last March, but it's clearly, clearly, clearly a problem, and we're not doing enough about it. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak to um, some of the civil servants who are looking at this issue. Some of them are very good. We have a very good team at Global Affairs that's looking at this. Um, a lot of the others, though, are are afraid. They're afraid of pointing the finger at Russia if it's if it's meddling at Iran or anyone. Um, and uh, and they're also afraid to talk about the motivations of these regimes. And if we don't do that, if we don't understand why these these regimes are doing it, and we if we don't expose it, I don't know how we're ever going to defeat it in this country. Well, it is a big concern, and, and you wonder, you know, who is going to be better in charge? I mean, if the Trudeau government doesn't care about it, I know certainly Aaron O'Toole has taken a pretty tough stance on on countries like China. I know his decision on Huawei would have been a long time ago, but mm. um, you know, then it becomes the concern as to who in the United States, if elected, is going to be more serious about challenging this. And I was hoping in the debate maybe we would have heard more on um, Iranian po- policy by Biden, because of, after all, it was the Obama administration that you know. Uh, put together a deal that I think was very dangerous. Trump undid that deal. But again, who is the better choice, um, if you can call either of them a good choice in this election, to make sure that this kind of stuff is fought? Well, I mean, this is this is a good question. I mean, uh, we saw during uh, the last few years of the uh, Obama administration, all of those red lines that were drawn in serious sand, mm-hmm. um, all of them sort of disappeared, and um, and the Iran- the uh, Syrian people really really suffered. Um, yeah. We saw the Obama era reset with Russia. Um, you know, so you know, I hope that if Joe Biden wins, that he's learned from those mistakes. Um, you know, I think there are enough people from the Obama administration who recognize that those were mistakes. So hopefully that's not the case. Um, with uh, with regards to Donald Trump, I think there are, you know, there are, there are challenges there, no doubt. Um, but I think there are enough people within his administration who understand this is a problem. And, you know, you know, you have to give him kudos as well when he, you know, he speaks about NATO. It's true. I mean, he has encouraged other nations uh, to step up their funding. I mean, he's also drawn back on troops in in uh, in Germany and such. I mean, of course, he's replaced them and or moved them over to uh, over to Poland. But um, you know, I think that that NATO as an organization is is actually not that it's not any worse off with with Donald Trump. And and in many ways, as far as funding is concerned, it's actually better off. Interesting times, scary times, but nonetheless, uh, glad it's on the radar at least with you, Marcus. I appreciate your insight to this and your uh, expertise. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Have a terrific weekend. That is Marcus Coldest. So look, if it can happen there, uh, it is already happening here. And uh, and that's because I think a lot of the bad guys of the world know that we are very either naive or very marshmallow soft when it comes to things like national security. I'm not going to be very blunt. I'm not going to tolerate violence. It's very simple. And believe, and, and he told me he doesn't tolerate it. So I don't, I don't know if a, a few folks are going rogue, but the way you get things settled is by sitting around the table, talking about solutions. You don't go after our police. You don't start burning telephone poles. You don't start digging up roads. That's unacceptable, and we won't tolerate it. 
Premier Ford today on the situation in Caledonia, uh, which has been a flashpoint for violence for well, well over a decade with uh, six, some members of Six Nations challenging several land developments. And the latest flashpoint is a proposed housing development called Mackenzie Meadows, which demonstrators say is built on their land. So for months, they have blocked off the site. They've even renamed it 1492 Land Back Lane. And there have been flashes of violence for months. But Thursday, it really took a turn after a judge granted a permanent injunction ordering these demonstrators off the land. And that's when we saw a clash with police who uh, ended up firing rubber bullets in their direction. And then demonstrators retaliated by overturning a bus, uh, blocking the site, burning tires and wood pallets, cutting off several um, homes to power. And today, an excavator was brought in to dig up Highway 6. So now no cars can travel, which is a pretty major and important throughway in that area. I want to bring in uh, Toby Barrett. He's the MPP for Holdem in Norfolk, and he knows this uh, issue and debate probably better than most because you've been there an awful long time. Good to have you, Mr. Barrett. Well, it's been 14 and a half years. I'm not saying I've got any answers, but uh, regrettably, there's now an awful lot of experience down our way on on all sides, and there's more than two sides. Right. And, and give us a little background so that people understand, because this is not the first time that a land development has become a contentious issue. But in, in this case, as I understand, there were consultations done. There were meetings with members of the Six Nations. Everything was, the I's were dotted, T's were crossed. Everything was done by the book over a series of of a couple of years. Um, What is the contention then? Well, the uh, construction started on this uh, subdivision, uh, somewhat in a similar way to construction on the previous subdivision back in 2006, the Douglas Creek Estates. And once things were rolling, uh, militants came in and uh, occupied the land and uh, really didn't make their position very clear, uh, other than, you know, talking about land rights and things like that. Uh, There was a court, you know, a court ruling yesterday bringing in a permanent injunction uh, to keep them off the subdivision and also to keep people off the protesting on the Haldeman County roads. Uh, however, it was a very bad night last night, a very bad day today. I've just, uh, I've just come home. It took me a few times as long to get out of Caledonia because so many roads are shut down. And when I say shut down, <clears throat> they've They've stolen a very large excavator and uh, in the Road, they've dug uh, two trenches across it. Argyle, that's the main street of Caledonia, has a, a trench across it, and then they rolled a school bus into it. The railroad tracks have been dug up with this excavator, and the Provincial Highway Number 6 Caledonia Bypass also has a, uh, a trench right across it. So we're... Oops, we've lost the connection with Mr. Barrett. Hopefully we can get that back. Um, can we work on getting that back, Corey? It's a, it's a maybe a bit of a contentious um, area, but we'll try to get Toby Barrett back. Um, this is a, a particular area that I spent a lot of time, not just growing up because I'd had horses out in Caledonia, but I was covering off the 2006 altercation, which he, uh, Mr. Barrett did mention, which was the Douglas Creek situation. And that was where uh, housing was being built. 
people had paid for this housing, and then a small number of uh, members of Six Nations came in and essentially took over. And that thing lasted a long time with the people of Caledonia uh, essentially... Well, I don't use the term necessarily held hostage, but they were terrorized either out of giving up what they had bought or getting out. And then, of course, the McGinty Wynn government threw a whole bunch of money at it, thinking that the solution had been had. And of course, we don't have that solution. Mr. Barrett, we we do have you back now, which is good. Um, the, the issue is not new to the area. Mr. Ford today was asked about it and said, you know, he won't tolerate it. But I don't know how you solve an issue that keeps being solved only to reignite again every couple of years. Because, um, you know, every time uh, an agreement is, is reached, it appears that other members of the group come forward and say, well, look, we weren't consulted. And so how do you, how do you negotiate anything if people from other, uh, whether it's hereditary bands or, or outside bands, come in and say, well, we've got a, a claim here as well? It's difficult to, well, it's not advised really to negotiate with lawbreakers. Uh, I ask the question constantly, who's in charge? Uh, even the most recent uh, spokesperson for this occupation, Skyler Williams, has indicated he's not in charge. So this makes us, you know, it's like nailing jelly to a wall. Uh, however, we do have laws, we have police, we have government for a reason, we have courts for a reason. And uh, when we walk away from some of those institutions, as I have witnessed in the last 14 and a half years, for, for whatever reason, political correctness or uh, other, other rulings that seem to hamper our OPP, when you walk away from these institutions, it's taken us hundreds of years to develop these structures to resolve these kinds of conflicts. And when you walk away, it does not end well. And so what happens? Because there are people, certainly in Caledonia, and I have to think over all these years, uh, and certainly, um, you know, it's illustrated in Christy Blatchford, the late Christy Blatchford's book, Helpless, of of what the people of Caledonia have been through. And and essentially, it sounds like they're being held hostage. I mean, who would want to buy anything in that area if you're worried that every time uh, ground breaks on something that a a group is going to come up and say, this isn't your land, we're taking it? Well, first of all, as we say down this way, thank God for Christy Blatchford. Yeah. wrote a book that explained what was going on before. Actually, four books mm-hmm. have been written about this uh, <clears throat> this issue. Um, uh, people want houses. There's a tremendous population pressure coming out of the GTA, coming out of Hamilton, Oakville, Burlington. Uh, of course, it has a, an impact on uh on house prices, but there's a tremendous demand, and uh, I know I'm a former MPP for Six Nations as well, and uh, they're very concerned. This goes back to 2006 with the uh, places to grow from the Beginty government, and they knew that uh, two sides of their uh, Six Nations community, and it's the largest reserve in Canada population-wise, they knew they were going to be surrounded by subdivisions on both sides of their uh, of their territory. And so what, what, how do you bring a resolution forward? We saw violence last night. The injunction is, is in place. The judge has ordered um, in, in favor of, of the developer in this, but uh, it's not going to stop people from gathering there. And it's certainly not going to stop the violence. So either the police act and hold the, the rule of law, but as you well know, 
that can bring a whole lot of trouble. And as we're seeing across the, the country, whether it is the Mi'kmaq situation in, in uh, Nor- uh, Nova Scotia, we've got situations in BC um, where they can very easily uh, shut down not just the economy like we saw with the blockades, but these things can escalate very, very quickly. Well, what we, we saw yesterday with the court ruling, we saw retaliation immediately when we see police action. There is retaliation, and one of the techniques used is arson, is using fire. Yeah. This is very, very frightening for people in Caledonia, and I've talked to so many people about this, it, you know, including all day today. They're held hostage. They live there. Uh, you know, there's little children playing, uh, you know, within half a block of where... Uh, some of these, uh, uh, you know, examples of mayhem and anarchy and violence. It's, it's two different worlds. It's, in many ways, uh, you have a third world situation when you uh, when you have absence of uh, of control and absence of anybody being in charge. So, um, uh, regrettably, I've witnessed 14 years of intimidation and uh, the use of fear. And in many cases, uh, almost mindless uh, violence. Uh, Do I have an answer? We have tried just about everything in the last 14 and a half years. Uh, There there has to be a resolution or a solution to this. But what has been done so far has not worked. And so, how far will will your government go to to bring calm to the to the to the community, uh, but actually provide a solution without throwing millions and millions and millions of dollars at it? Well, the you know it's it's already cost the area billions of dollars, not only Caledonia but up and down the river, Dunville and Brantford, and lost opportunities. <clears throat> Companies that won't move there. Uh, the you know, the inhibition on housing construction, for example, although it has taken off like a rocket on the other side of Caledonia. And uh, I guess that's puzzling why uh, one area is, is uh, allowed to go forward and not another. Uh, again, I, I think we, you know, there's good people on all sides. Mm-hmm. We have a few outliers. Uh, a few, I think the term bad apples was used today. Uh, but the good people down here, and there's good people on all sides. I've, I've lived here down down here all my life, and uh, uh, very good people on all sides. But we're uh, we're caught in a bit of a catch-22, and it uh, it does require leadership, and it's going to re- require a, a different approach. With these uh, digging up all these roads and highways just in the last uh, 12 or 24 hours, uh, I'm afraid. We're into a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, there's a, there's yeah. a climate out there tonight that I haven't seen in 14 years. Well, I certainly hope that it doesn't uh, erupt into more violence. But of course, uh, having covered it before, I know that it can turn. So we'll keep an eye on it, Mr. Barrett. I do appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Well, thank you for the interest. Thank you. Thank you. That is Toby Barrett uh, from Holdem in Norfolk, and uh, it is a very contentious issue. And by the way, if you want to get an idea of this and the situation, what's at play, and you really want to get a feel of what the people of Caledonia have been through, I can't encourage you more to read Helpless. It is by Christy Blatchford. She covered it. Um, And of course, worth every, um, you know, worth worth the time to read if you really want to truly understand the issue, how complicated it is, and how Caledonians have been utterly failed.
utterly failed by uh, several governments. So we'll keep an eye on that. I here to defend America's mayor, Rudolph Giuliani. What was an innocent, sexy time encounter between a consenting man and my 15-year-old daughter had been turned into something disgusting by fake news media. I warn you, anyone else try this and Rudolph will not hesitate to reach into his legal briefs and whip out his subpoenas. Cenkui. Oh, that's Borat. Not sorry, sorry, but uh, yeah. And he's got a sequel out that has a title longer than this show. It is called uh, Borat's Subsequent Movie Film. Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. The working title is Borat, Gift of Sexy Monkey to Vice Premier Michael Pence for Make Benefit Recently Diminished Nation of Kazakhstan. All right, so you got it. But uh, this is a sequel to his last movie 14 years ago. And like his uh, first movie, Sasha Baron Cohen spares no one. And it might actually just be what everyone needs in this year from hell because it was shot and produced in this year from hell and uh, pretty much reflects every ugly chapter of uh, the state of our neighbors. Chris Knight is a chief film critic with the National Post. He joins us. And Chris, you have seen this. I have, yes. And you summed it up nicely, including that mouthful of a title. (laughs) <laughs> it was like, I don't even know what this means, but whatever, I'll try. Um, is it as funny as the first one? It's almost as funny as the first one. There are definitely some points where I was like just about rolling around on the floor, and I wish this could be seen in, in cinemas because it's the sort of thing that would be fantastic to experience with a lot of other people if only one could. Um, but, yeah, it's it's pretty close, and, you know, there are a lot of very, very funny moments in it. Right. And I think it's it's streaming on Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's right. Okay. So you can get it now. Uh, but but it's uh, interesting because not only does Mr. Giuliani make an appearance in it, but Mr. Trudeau makes an appearance in it. And it's probably not the kind of acting that he would like to be uh, getting a starring role for. Yeah, I'm sure he's not very happy. There's, there, I mean, he's only in there for a second, but there's a bit where Borat is talking about Barack Obama being a, a horrible president who was then succeeded, succeeded by the wonderful president. I think he calls him McDonald Trump. And uh, he says that Barack Obama's uh, reign in America allowed other uh, African-American people to take over other countries. And then, of course, we see a brief picture of Trudeau in the infamous blackface shot. Yeah, the the first black when he was Aladdin, um, yeah. they didn't go for the extra 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 dark black face um, uh, with the one with the banana down the pants. But nonetheless, he's in this, and so it will get lots of play, lots of airtime. But then there is that scene of uh, of course Mr. Giuliani, and that's what the apology uh, non apology is. He somehow got duped into going into a bedroom with a reporter. They come out pretending, I guess, that she's a fifteen year old girl. Jokes on Giuliani, and he ain't laughing. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a real jaw dropping moment. I mean, you know, as critics, we were asked not to spoil it, but it's basically all over the news now. Let alone the you can spoil thing. it. Come on. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the, the fact is, yeah, Giuliani is is, is ready to uh, you know ready to get very friendly with this reporter. Who I must say, she's she's 15, she's a fifteen year old girl in the movie. The actor who plays her is a twenty four year old woman. Uh, whether what age Giuliani thought this person was, I don't think we know. But the, the fact of the matter is still that you know he's he's caught in a very compromising position in the film. 
And and what's the premise of this film? Because it, it started shooting in the beginning of 2020. So it was pre-pandemic and then it had to kind of take its way through the pandemic and pivot like everybody else. Is it reflected in this movie? Oh, very much so. In fact, yeah, there's there's a scene where Borat uh, is, finds himself in an area that's, uh, you know, under under quarantine and he has to he, he basically goes and moves in with a couple of very nice guys who realize he doesn't have any place to stay, so they take him into into their uh, into their house for a few days. And of course, he stays in character as Borat the entire time. I guess the the loose plot is that he's gone to America with his daughter, whom he's going to present as a gift to anyone in the American administration that he can find as a way of sort of currying favor for his uh, his homeland. And of course, it doesn't go quite as he plans. No, and of course, Mr. Epstein's not around anymore because he probably would have uh, enjoyed it. But uh, I don't understand how in this time, you know, and with this many appearances, and, and he's so well known for his um, comedy, how people don't recognize him when he walks in the room. Like, I don't understand how he still fools people. Well, there's a lot of scenes in the movie where people do recognize him. But I think what happens in, in a lot of places is that Sasha Baron Cohen is in disguise as Borat, who is in turn in disguise so that people don't recognize him as Borat. So there's sort of layers within layers of this movie. Uh, and I guess there's also enough people out there who don't know Borat or haven't seen his stuff that he, he, he finds those people as well. And he'll find a new audience because a lot of people, I mean, it's been 14 years since he made a movie. And so maybe if you were t- too young before because you were you know, in your teens, now you're old enough to see it. So it will spawn a whole, a whole new generation of audience. Yeah, definitely. I can't believe it's been it's been 14 years. Uh, I was kidding that it, that's like 35 pandemic years uh, since the last. <laughs> so true. yeah, there's a lot of people certainly who uh, I mean, my kids are very anxious to see the new one. I'm not quite sure if I'm going to let them see it. Uh, but of course, they don't know the, the original one at all because they were tiny at the time. Right. And so, you know, but cl- clearly there he is looking at 2020, not just uh, for the pandemic, but just you know, the state of America and where it is, um, you know, as, as divided as ever. Well, yeah, Borat too. I, I called it the movie of the year, and I don't necessarily mean the best movie of the year, although it could well turn out to be that too. But I mean that this movie is 2020. It's dangerous right. and crude and crazy, and sometimes you just have to laugh at it. And, like, that's the time we're going through right now. Well, it is. And, and people need a laugh. I think people actually just need a laugh at this point. Because if, you can't, if yeah. you can't laugh, uh, Chris, you're just going to start to cry. <laughs> exactly. And there is certainly a lot a lot to laugh at in this. And I have to say, it's not all poking fun at Americans. Certainly Borat finds some people who are sort of represent the worst of American culture. But he also strangely finds some people who uh, who have a, have big hearts and uh, progressive ideas. And, and it's you know, there's there's a bit of that in there as well. So you'll you'll laugh at the movie, but there's times where you just kind of smile at it as well. All right. I will uh, probably indulge this weekend, but appreciate your insight, Chris. Thanks. Have a terrific weekend. All right. You too. Take care. All right. There you go. I'm not going to give you the movie title again because it'll make me go late in the show. But, uh, you know, if you need a good chuckle, I think uh, we could all use that. Maybe it's a good one to pick up this weekend. So you can get that on Amazon Prime Time. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can listen to us live 6.30 to 10 weekdays, Monday through Friday, every day. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point for Global News Radio.